Our topic is, of course, test all things, and this is our last sermon from 1 Thessalonians 21. And today our main topic, to begin with at least, is going to be, is private judgment dangerous? We looked at the arguments for private judgment, the arguments against private judgment, how it's abused, and today we'll look at, is it dangerous? Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Now, the great objection against private judgment, and, and I've watched uh, Roman Catholic apologists. There's a guy who used to be in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. He converted to Romanism, and now he's a big Roman Catholic apologist. And I've seen apologists for the Eastern Orthodox communions, and they all have this argument. Well, private judgment is totally dangerous, and it divided the church. <clears throat> Private judgment has destroyed the unity of the church. And Romanists like to point out that there was, are literally hundreds of different Christian denominations which teach all sorts of different doctrines, many of which are heretical and crazy. So, look, that's a terrible thing. We had unity before the Protestants came. And I've heard that argument repeatedly. Rome, Roman Catholicism has presented sola scriptura as a foolish idea that leads to spiritual and doctrinal anarchy where every man will determine for himself what is truth. And they argue that the only way to preserve unity and doctrinal integrity is to submit oneself to the living tradition of the church. And that's how they talk. The living tradition. And we pointed out in a previous sermon or sermons uh, that th this living tradition is a farce. They contradict themselves all over the place. Popes contradict themselves. There's a pope that excommunicated a former pope, etc., etc. And at one time there were three separate popes. Oh no, excuse me, two. And well, and then there was a brief time when there were three, but there was one in France and one in Rome. <clears throat> they argue that the only way to preserve unity and doctrinal integrity is to submit oneself to the church. In this kind of argument where unity and harmony is set in opposition to chaos and anarchy is easily refuted by the following observations. First, it is not the careful study of scripture that causes disunity. Remember the command of our text, prove everything. And, and of course the presupposition the implication is you're proving everything by scripture, by the sacred tradition handed down by the apostles and the prophets. <clears throat> it is not a careful study of scripture which is commanded and commended by God in a number of places that causes divisions, but man's sinful nature. Divisions are inevitable because of sin. There's no problem with the word. The word is perfect. The problem is with us and sin. It causes men to sometimes be blind to what the scripture is saying, and sometimes it causes them to have unbiblical presuppositions that they impose on the text. So the problem, of course, is sin. Because of the fall and what theologians call the noetic effects of sin, how sin affects knowledge, Men are very fallible. And the best of men make mistakes. 
When fallible men interpret the infallible word of God, they will make mistakes. Calvin has some things wrong. Gillespie, Rutherford. No one is a perfect man. And that, beloved, is the major reason why we are to test or prove everything from the Bible. I disagree with Calvin. I agree with him the vast majority of the time. Same with Rutherford and Gillespie, but there are things, people make mistakes. I've changed my position on certain things over the years. Augustine, the greatest theologian in the ancient church, before he died, wrote a book of retractions, things that he wrote that he disagrees with in his old age. Second, the Romanist argument is founded on a deception. And it's dishonest. For in spite of its claims of possessing a unity, it actually contains many, many differing schools of thought. You got Augustinians, you got Jesuits, you got Jansenists, you've got all these different monasteries and all these different schools of thought that are different. The Jesuits, of course, being the worst. And during the early Reformation, Jesuits had people assassinated. They were like the mafia back then. <clears throat> it contains hundreds of different ideas, philosophies, and ethical positions within the Roman Catholic Church. Their supposed unity is purely an imposed governmental unity, an institutional unity, not a doctrinal unity. God doesn't care how big your church is. God doesn't care uh, that you might have, you know, a billion members. If your unity is a false unity, he doesn't care. He cares whether you believe the gospel. Do you hold to the gospel? Have you repented of your sin? Are you adhering to the faith once delivered of the saints? He didn't care how big you are. Our scripture reading today was Acts chapter 1. Jesus preached three and a half years. He did miracles all over, the, all over Israel. He had giant crowds that watched him preach and witnessed his miracles. And how many faithful followers did he have after three and a half years? The best preacher who ever lived. The sinless son of God. 120 disciples. <laughs> That's it. Their supposed unity is clearly an opposed institutional governmental unity. And Augustinian has little in common with a Jesuit. A liberal Roman Catholic, and most of them are liberal today, especially in America, who supports feminism and sodomite rights, has almost nothing in common with an old-school patriarchal Roman Catholic. Even the Pope is soft on homosexuality and these things. The Bible praises unity only when it is real. That is, when it is based on the truth, correct theology, biblical worship, biblical practice in church government, he wants unity in the truth. A humanistic, artificial, pragmatic unity has nothing to do with Scripture. The current Pope, a left-wing socialist, is adamantly opposed to social conservatives in his own church. He defrocked a bishop here in Texas, I think it was Texas, because of the, he was very conservative on social issues, which is what the church used to be. 
the Roman Catholic Church. It's not that way anymore. They're a bunch of socialists, which is basically the worship of theft and covetousness and statism. The government has no biblical right to steal money from Paul to give to Peter because Paul's more successful. The Bible teaches charity, private charity. No state. The state can say there's some fallow land over there, glean, but the state doesn't have a right to steal from one person to give to another. <clears throat> so the idea that the papal church gives us unity is a myth. It's a myth. An oppressive, prelatical rule based on human traditions is radically antithetical to the unity that Scripture requires. For the Pope is not a king, and he's certainly not the vicar of Christ. If you study what he teaches, if you listen to what he says, he's an antichrist. And of course, the old Protestants universally called him the antichrist. The resurrected and ascended Jesus, and Jesus alone is king and head of the church. He's our king. Presbyters or elders and teaching rulers, ministers of God, preachers, are there simply to do a ministerial job of teaching what Christ told them to teach. The discipline is based on Scripture. They have no independent authority whatsoever. We can only have genuine Christian unity by sticking to, strictly adhering to, and confessing what he has taught us in the Holy Scriptures. Matthew 28, 19 to 20. Teach them, the nations, disciple the nations, how? The sacraments, obviously, and teaching them in the whole counsel of God. Everything that I've commanded you, teach them that. He didn't say come up with your own ideas about worship and make up a bunch of cool stuff that people really like. No, teach them what I told you. Jesus wrote the scriptures, him and the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit, the scriptures were written by divine inspiration. Third, the fruit of Roman Catholicism is far worse and more harmful, doctrinally, ethically, and socially, than what the divisions in Protestant, Protestantism have caused. So the idea that we can prove an ethical position by us being unified, it's a farce ethically. Now ask yourself, are the, are the divisions among conservative evangelical Bible-believing Protestants worse than the many heresies and abominations of Rome? Popish unity is actually a satanic unity from the realm of darkness. Worshipping the Virgin Mary making her a co-mediatrix with Christ, a co-mediator with Christ. That's blasphemous. Worshipping statues, kissing the feet of statues. I was raised Roman Catholic, and this back in the 60s, old school Roman Catholicism, on the different holidays, they had a statue of, well, they had a giant crucifix with Christ in the middle, and they had a statue of Joseph on one side of, the alt, of their, quote, altar, on one side, and on the other side, they had a statue of the Virgin Mary. And on different occasions, they would literally dress them up in different beautiful outfits. And these statues were fully colored with, you know, red lips and everything. And people would stop, and we, people would come into the church and they would pray before the Virgin Mary. That's Roman Catholicism. The Papal Church explicitly denies the biblical doctrine of salvation. What's more important than that? Justification by faith alone, apart from human merit or the works of the law. 
Look these up later. Romans 3, 20 to 24. Romans 4, 3 to 8 and 5, 1. Acts 13, 39. Ephesians 2, 8 to 9. Galatians 2, 16. Philippians 3, 8 to 9. John 3, 16. Etc., etc., etc. Many, many passages. The Roman Catholic Council of Trent, 1547. Actually, no, I think it's 63. I have to go back and fix that. Says, quote, Justification is not the, re the removal of our sins alone, but also the sanctification and renovation of the inner man through the willing reception of the grace and other gifts by which a man, which, uh, by which a man, in the grammar here is wrong, but from being unjust, in there in the Latin, ex injusto, becomes just. And for being enemy, becomes a friend, so that he may be an heir according to the hope of eternal life. Decree on Justification, Session 7. So they're saying justification is not by the imputed righteousness of Christ, what Luther calls an alien righteousness. It's not yours. It belongs to Christ. And God reckons it to your account. That's why it's an alien righteousness. It comes from outside of you. And they say, no, 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 no. It's uh, God sends the Holy Spirit into you. He gives you grace. You have to receive it because they teach their Arminian, their semi-Pelagian. You have to receive that grace, cooperate with that grace, become more and more sanctified and holy over time, and then, if you're good enough, God will declare you righteous. That's their teaching. That is explicitly salvation by the works of the law. For the Roman Catholic, Christ sends the Spirit into his people so that they can become more holy over time and achieve justification. It's something you achieve you cooperate with grace. It is something that takes place in the center over a long period of personal struggle. And if the church member doesn't quite make it, he doesn't achieve justification, he gets to go to purgatory, this third place where the leftover sins can be burned off uh, with thousands of years suffering in purgatory. I'm serious, this is what they teach. And they base purgatory on something in the Apocrypha, which is not inspired. And purgatory was not accepted by the church for centuries. It's an added thing. <clears throat> the biblical view is that a believer is justified solely by what Jesus accomplished by his vicarious atonement, his sacrifice on the cross, his bloody death, and his filling the covenant of works. That is, he earned eternal life through his righteousness, Romans 4.8. He, he obeyed the law. You did not. That's what's amazing about the cross. He takes away your guilt and sin, the negative aspect, the, and then there's a positive aspect that evangelicals don't preach. He imputes his achieving redemption to your account. Perfect righteousness. Because the law requires two things of a sinner to go to heaven. A, you can't break the law. If you break the law, you're guilty. You're dead. And B, you have to perfectly obey the law. Christ did both. He paid the penalty. He obeyed the law. Because, as the Reformation really emphasized, I think it's Luke 17.10, all of our best works, working at a soup kitchen, handing out tracts, witnessing to your neighbor, being a good husband, a good wife, whatever, being a good child, all of our good works are tainted with sin. Jesus made that explicitly clear. So you don't earn anything. And certainly, good works don't counteract your sins. They have to be washed away by suffering and death. 
the Christian obtains Jesus' perfect redemption solely through the instrument of faith. According to the Papal Church, the ground of a Christian's justification is the death of Christ and, and the Christian's personal holiness, law-keeping, or good works. Faith plus works equals salvation. That's Roman Catholicism. Faith plus works equals salvation. That's a damnable heresy. The Protestant position is faith in Christ alone saves you. Faith is the instrument. It, it, faith doesn't save you. Christ saves you. But faith lays hold of what Christ did. Now, contrary to Roman Catholic apologists, biblical Protestants do preach sanctification. Well, Reformed people do anyway. A lot of, there's a lot of antinomians out there. They do teach, preach sanctification and the necessity of growth and holiness and obedience over time. All the, all the Dutch and German standards, all the Presbyterian standards, all the teaching, right, sermons of the Puritans, Spurgeon, everybody taught this. But sanctification, which does, does take place in the believing sinner, and this is the distinction that's critical that Romanists cannot make and the Federal Visionists cannot make, it is a fruit of justification and must never be confused with it. It's not a cause. It's not a co-ground. It's not... Uh, it, it, Faith and works uh, and good works that flow from faith are not the same thing as the federal visionists like to think they are. They're not the same thing. One's a fruit. It doesn't contribute to your salvation. You're obligated to do it. You better be holy. No one can go to heaven without repenting. But it doesn't contribute to your salvation one iota. Romans 6, 1 to 18. Galatians 5, 13 to 25. The Roman Catholic Church is full of idolatry and superstition. Many Romanists, I would say most Romanists, worship the Virgin Mary and pray to her as a co-mediatrix. When I was a pagan, all the girls I knew that were Roman Catholics prayed to Mary almost exclusively. You know, God, he might be angry with me, but Mary's like a mother. She's going to be more friendly. I and mean, that's their thinking. Totally ridiculous, because God's love is perfect, but that's what they think. Now, does a unity that sends one straight to hell benefit anyone? Well, we have unity, but we're all going to go to hell unless we contradict the teaching of our church. That's not a very good unity, is it? There will be perfect unity in hell of evil. Does a unity that leads one away from Jesus Christ into idolatry, idolatry is it beneficial? Is it not better to have the right of private judgment which gave us the Protestant Reformation and the restoration of the true gospel as well as true worship of Christ? In the 1950s, uh, the conservative Lutherans put out a movie, a black and white movie on Luther, which is excellent. It's better than the newer version, although the newer was the quality of the filming of the new one. But the bishop comes to, well, I forget what his name was. The bishop comes to Luther says, Luther, if we accept what you say, we have to give up all these statues and crucifixes and pictures and all, you know, the, the, all these trinkets. And Luther said, that's great. Then we'll just have Christ. It's a really good movie. <clears throat> I will take the true gospel and a saving knowledge and trust in Jesus Christ over the faults tyrannical unity of Rome every single day of the week. And so should you. You want unity? 
a unity that sends you straight to hell? Fine, go for it. Stalin had his kind of unity. Chairman Mao had his kind of unity. Charles Manson had his kind of unity. That's not the kind of unity we should seek. It is far better to be decentralized with a few heirs, especially non-fundamental heirs, than totally centralized with universal heresies and abominable idolatries. The solution to disunity and differences in doctrine among Protestants is not an unbiblical ecumenicalism that ignores doctrinal differences for an unbiblical surface institutional unity. That's the whole ecumenical movement. You don't agree on doctrine, you don't agree on ethics, you don't agree on virtually anything, but you get united for the sake of saying, hey, look, we're united, we're great. United Council of Churches were sending money to Marxists in Africa who were murdering Christian missionaries. I'm serious, they did. That happened. The only answer is to test and prove everything from Scripture. And of course, I could have simply said, well, Paul commands us to do this, so... Have, you have to have the right department judgment to obey Paul. In addition, one must ask, what is schismatic? What is disunity? What is it? Those who depart from the truth of the gospel and biblical worship for human traditions and, and human philosophies... <coughs> Or those who leave an apostate church in order to be faithful to the scriptures? Who's, who's the one who's being faithful and believing in true unity? <clears throat> Which one? If one is to hold fast to apostolic doctrine, one must separate oneself from idolaters and heretics. Better to be with those like Elijah and the small remnant than with Ahab, Jezebel, and the apostate masses. So those who are dis in, against unity are those who depart from the true doctrine. Not those who have to leave because they're not willing to commit idolatry. And I can prove that from Scripture. I won't take the time now, but it's easy to prove that from Scripture. Now, many Protestants have backslidden and become corrupt over the last 150 years. But they are not as corrupt and ungodly as the Papal Church. We must pray for Reformation and a return to the great achievements of the Protestant Reformation. Okay, the celibacy thing's totally unbiblical, and the rate of priests molesting children is mind-boggling. It's shocking. What Solomon says regarding land applies to doctrinal practical achievements. Proverbs 22, 28, Do not remove the ancient landmarks which your fathers have set. Everyone should start by studying, learning, and adopting the original Westminster Standards, 1647. That's when it was approved which are the pinnacle of the Protestant Reformation. If you place the Word of God above all and submit to what it teaches, you'll uh, throw away your crucifixes, your images of Christ, Mary and the saints, your holy water, the mass, idolatry, signs of the cross, indulgences, confessionals, the added five added sacraments, icons, pilgrimages, relics, prelacy, false doctrines, they're all going to go right in the trash. It's better to know Christ than hug up to Antichrist. You will not trust your souls to ignorant fools in such cases <clears throat> who deny the blessings, blessings of lawful marriage and covenant headship, who 
you will stop acting like a blindfolded sheep where you follow the leader without even bothering to learn what the Bible, the infallible word of the living God actually says. That's the thing. I've, I've witnessed hundreds of Catholics. And maybe once or twice over a period of 40-some years, I've run into a Catholic who actually can debate doctrine, who knows what the Catholics actually teach. Most of them don't know a thing about the doctrine. And the argument is, well, I was born a Roman Catholic. I'm a Roman Catholic. Why? What do you believe? No, I don't know. I was born a Catholic. That's, that's the most common view. They don't know. Jesus said, if the blind follow the blind, will not both fall into a ditch? Matthew 5.14. If you care about your soul, you will make the Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible, be your soul and supreme rule of faith and practice. Test everything by the word of God. Now, just a few applications, and then we're going to look at the, uh, the commandment that says we've got to hold on to the truth. When we think about perfection and the authority of Scripture and the fact that it is foundational to our salvation and proper manner of life, there are some questions that we need to ask. First, and this is important, do we possess an accurate, accurate translation of the Bible, not a paraphrase, or a what's called a dynamic equivalence version, which is simply a mild paraphrase? And that means we would want the King James Version or the New King James Version or the King James 2, Peter Green. <clears throat> and um, I, I, uh, I didn't get into it here, but also do we use a proper text? Do we use the majority text instead of the minority text, the liberal text? <clears throat> so do we possess an accurate translation that we read every day to become intimately familiar with its contents? Learn your Bible. Professing Christians in America spend a great deal of time watching television and surfing the internet. And the average, I forget, for young people, it was like eight or nine hours a day or something crazy. For older people, it was like six hours a day. The numbers are shocking. Such professing Christians remain immature spiritually and are easily taken in by heirs and syncretistic, theological, and practical errors. And I remember, I'll never forget, I was going door to door as a salesman. It was back in the 70s. And I talked, I, so I ran into Mormons, I ran into Mormons all the time, and I ran into Jehovah's Witnesses all the time, because they're out there knocking on doors. And I had a leader. He was like a guy who watches over the, the people. He was like their, their big shot, Jehovah's Witness. Admit to me because I was debating about the divinity of Christ, he admitted to me that they basically went after people, they loved going after people who didn't know anything about Christianity. So that's, that's true of the Mormons, because the Mormons present themselves as Christians, and they're not, they're not even close to being Christians. Their, their doctrines are blasphemous and, and, and totally idolatrous. <clears throat> one cannot test all things by Scripture if one is grossly ignorant of what the Bible says. I think that's one of the reasons so many professing Christians, I think it's like 69% are voting for Trump because they're not examining Trump in, in the light of what scripture requires of a leader. They're looking at him as a populist and as a popular guy who's funny and charismatic. And he did some really good things in his first term. And compared to the Democrats, he's obviously the Apostle Paul compared to a satanic Democrat. But he's not a godly man. He, you know, he's... <laughs> 
He's not honest. He's unfaithful to his wives. Maybe the current one he's faithful to, but the previous ones he was not faithful to. And his first wife, who he never should have divorced, she was a great wife, died alone. She fell down the stairs by herself and died. That's on him. He's not a good man. He's not a godly man. He's evil. Now, he's better than the Democrats, but let's judge things by scripture and not by what we, you know, may personally, you know, I may like a quarterback or a boxer. That doesn't mean he's a good person. <clears throat> in America, as the Christian world and life view dissipates and the culture grows more and more immoral and irrational over time, polls indicate that professing Christians are to an extent following these unbiblical and immoral trends. Evangelicals have been getting soft on homosexuality, or at least softer. The PCA has a minister who says he's a homosexual. Now he says, he's, I'm just a non-practicing. I am, a, but he identifies as a homosexual, allegedly. That's what I, that, allegedly. And that's just, you got to be kidding me. It has to be a past tense thing. The Holy Spirit uses the Bible to enlighten our minds and convict our hearts of sin so that we are sanctified and more and more transformed into obedient children. Only a solid knowledge of Scripture is going to eliminate this trend of evangelicalism toward antinomianism and focusing on crazy views of eschatology. You know, the Jesus is coming back tomorrow stuff. <clears throat> Jesus prayed. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth, John 17, 17. Peter says, you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit. 1 Peter 1, 22. And then in 1 Peter 2, 2. As newborn babes, desire the pure, pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Do you want to grow? Learn the Bible. Do you want to grow? Study scripture. Learn good Christian theology. Learn good Christian ethics. Know what you're talking about. Because, you know, I, more and more, I, I want to do a series maybe on this, but I, I watch these atheist apologists on YouTube and who are super, immensely popular, super popular. And some are very, you know, they're very good communicators. They're not very logical, but they're very good communicators. And their arguments are just so bad and so stupid if you know Scripture. It's obvious they don't know Scripture. You know, I saw one recently. Well, you know, there's a parasite that eats through your eyeballs and gets into your brain and eats your brain. How could a God, a loving God allow that? Well, the reason the world is so messed up is absolutely not God's fault one iota. It's because man fell into sin. Man had a free will and he sinned. He brought the curse on the universe. He brought sin into the universe. God did not. But anyway, that's for another day. <clears throat> Second, do we study and meditate on Scripture so that it saturates our thinking and worldview? This practice is a key to growth in grace and progressing in Christian maturity. It is a prominent topic in the book of Psalms. Here's 1, 1 to 3. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord... And in his law, he meditates day and night. 
So that's not somebody who whips the Bible out on Christmas or something or Easter. <laughs> he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Although the Christian is not under the curse or the condemnation of the law because of what Jesus did, Jesus fulfilled the law both as the precept and the penalty. He continuously meditates on it and delights in it as his rule for life. And we all see the chaos in our society, the, the cities. Theft is out of control. They're shutting down supermarkets. They're shutting down drugstores in the inner cities because theft is, they're losing a ton of money. It's not because of racism. It's, it's because of immorality. The people in those neighborhoods are immoral. They lead a highly immoral lifestyle. And that leads to a curse on their lives. Obviously, there's the curse of sin that sends one to eternal fire, but there's the, you're cursed in your life if you live like that. The Hebrew word, of course, Torah, is much broader than the moral law and refers to all divine instruction or the whole counsel of God. He studies the word continuously and he contemplates it, he meditates on it so that he can apply it to his life and society. He delights in it because he understands it comes from God himself and is the source of real peace, happiness, and prosperity. I love that passage. I guess it's the Proverbs, right? Trust not in your own... Uh, don't lean on your own understanding, but trust in the Lord with all your heart. If there's something that you can't comprehend, it doesn't seem right to you, but the Bible says this and defines it this way, trust the God. You can trust the Bible. You're wrong. <laughs> You're wrong. All those people who compromised on evolution back in the late 1800s because they thought it was real science, every one of them is wrong, and they've been proven to be wrong. To meditate, we must first learn what, learn what the scriptures teach. Then we learn how these truths relate to the scriptures as a whole. What the reformers call the analogy of scripture. How, do, how does it relate? Following this, we shine the light of these truths on our thinking and behavior. We delight in the word because we know our sinful tendency due to the fall is to think and act like a wicked fool. We're all sinners. All Christians are sinners. All Christians fall far, far short of what God's word requires. And that's just obvious. Anybody who's attended church for any, any amount of time knows that's obvious. <coughs> so we need to meditate on scripture and really learn it and conform ourselves to it. The scriptures give us true wisdom and discrimination. Proverbs 23, 7. For as he thinks in his heart, so is he. You, you, you know, you look at what's going on in the cities where th there's all this theft and crime and and homelessness and people pooping in the streets and shooting up heroin right in the streets and fentanyl and dying on the sidewalks. And how could the liberals be so insane and cruel and completely satanic and idiotic? Because that's the way they think in their heart. They think they're doing the people good. They really believe that what they're doing is good, even though it's obvious to a five-year-old with a brain that what they're doing is insane and crazy. Meditation is the touchstone of the Christian. It shows what metal he is made of. It is a spiritual index. The index shows what is in the book, so meditation shows what is in the heart. It doesn't do you any good sitting on the shelf over there collecting dust. I have my, my parents' family Bible. They bought it, I think, in the late 50s. It's a really fancy Roman Catholic Bible with all these beautiful pictures. 
Um, and it's, of course, the Douay version. In the Old Testament, I forgot what the Old Testament version is called. The New Testament's called the Douay version. Um, and my parents, the only time they ever cracked it open was to write in, you know, this person was born on this day. <laughs> this person died on this day. <clears throat> Meditation chews the cud and gets the sweetness and nutritive value out of the word into the heart and life. This is the way the godly bring forth much fruit. Chew the cud of God's word. The one who meditates on the word is like a tree planted by a river. He, he is solid. He's dependable. He is unmovable as to his faith. And he continuously grows because he has a continuous source of spiritual nourishment. And therefore he produces fruit. And if you've ever been to a desert climate, we would, you know, we, would, we used to drive, I've driven I-40 to California several times. And you get in, I, I forget where it is, probably Arizona or New Mexico. Well, well, probably both. You'll be driving, it's complete desert all around you and rocks and cliffs and stuff. And then you look and there's a river. And next to the river is a ribbon of green. Beautiful trees and grass next to the river. Third. Do we memorize crucial passages to quote to ourselves and the devil when we are tempted? David writes this, Psalm 119.11. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. You're going to be tempted at times because of the sinful flesh or past bad habits or whatever, or sinful tendencies. What do you do? You quote scripture to yourself. You learn your problem areas and you memorize scripture. We live in a wicked, corrupt culture where allurements to sin and satanic arguments abound. We need biblical communication, biblical ammunition, ready to use to fight off such temptations and attacks. You know, there's tons of all these, you know, news things and political conservatives. From a biblical perspective, I don't think I've heard any of them that are even near close to being biblical in the way they think and analyze things. That really popular guy, that uh, Jordan Peterson, his view of the Bible is satanic to the core. So is um, Ben Shapiro. And so are the Roman Catholics on that show. Now, they have, I agree with certain things they say politically and certain things they say about homosexuality and the trans movement. Yeah, but their view of Christ and their view of the Bible is just ridiculously bad. The memorizing of Scripture, especially in areas where we are weak and have fallen short in the past, is especially useful since the Spirit can use what is right there in our hearts to convince us to make the right choice Saying no to sin, saying yes to righteousness. <clears throat> the Holy Spirit convicts us <coughs> and changes us by means of the word so that we want victory over sin and temptation. The more we focus on Scripture, the better. We must know the truth and cherish it so that it permeates our intellect and emotions. When the Spirit and the Word are present in the heart, there is power against sin. And if we know and understand the Word and keep it in our mind by faith, we will be able to resist Satan himself. If we take for granted the Bible and we let it collect dust, we are like a soldier who goes into battle without shield or sword. There's no excuse for that. You know, it's only been in modern times when people could afford Bibles. It used to be that, nope, People couldn't afford a Bible because, you know, they were basically handwritten. There'd be one Bible in the church and it would be attached to the pulpit with a big heavy chain. 
and you know, you know, can I go look at the Bible? <laughs> People cherished it. We take it for granted. I've got like probably 35, 40 different kind of Bibles in here. <clears throat> James 1.22, Be ye doers of the word and not hearers, only deceiving yourselves. And then we come to the end of this series. Hold fast to the truth. After Paul commands us to test everything, he tells us to hold fast to the truth of those teachings that are in a full agreement with the truth. The apostle speaks in ethical terms, defining true teaching as that which is good. That which agrees with the biblical record. It is not enough to carefully study scripture and learn the truth as well as firmly believe it. One must grasp it. One must cling to it. One must keep it in one's heart the rest of one's life. In other words, one must hold on to it and persevere. Discipleship is a lifelong process of testing all things and then holding fast to that which is good, biblical, and necessary for faith and life. So the Christian life is like a long journey on a narrow path surrounded by dangers, stumbling blocks, temptations, all around us. Public schools are run by Satanists. The colleges and universities, except for explicit Christian ones, are basically run by a bunch of Satanists. Hollywood, Satanists, the news media, even Fox News. Yeah, it's, of course it's way better than CNN and CNNBC or whatever it's called. But it's conservative Roman Catholics. Most people in our day who profess Jesus and begin the journey never complete it. Because they did not hold fast the truths of Scripture. When I was younger, I was way more evangelistic. And I, I know, you know, there, I could think of 30 people that made a profession of faith to me, witnessing and so forth. Out of those 30 people, I think two remained Christians. And some of these people became members, and some of these people I looked up to and stuff. You got to persevere to the end. The reasons why we are required to hold fast are all related to our sinful nature and the sinful and historical tendency of professing Christians to become cold, complacent, and careless over time. Read your Bible, the whole history of Israel, the history of the church, the excitement, zeal, and love toward Jesus and the gospel that one had in the beginning can become lax or lukewarm. If the great truths of Scripture are not held fast and kept in one's heart. When the gospel and word is not properly appreciated and people take Christ's amazing salvation for granted, the cares of this world can choke out the word and the professing Christian is unfruitful. Matthew 13, 22. And I remember I went to a Christian college. I went to the RPCNA college in Beaver Falls for one year. And... Uh, the vast majority of the people there, well, they were they had liberals and Catholics and stuff, but the, these were people raised as Christians, and they totally took most of them took totally took it all for granted, and really didn't care about what the Bible said. They're here to have fun, and if that involves some sinning, yeah, so be it. That's their whole attitude. Paul calls us to persevere in solid Christian doctrines for times of testing, opposition, and even persecution will come. These truths of Scripture must be held in our consciousness in a solid, consistent manner so that even with little forethought, 
With war without warning or reflection, we can think, speak, and do the right thing automatically. So it's just second nature, like driving a car. It's second nature to you. <coughs> we want a correct manner of thinking, speaking, and acting to be second nature. That is an ingrained habitual practice. A faith that keeps these truths in our heart is a shield against the forces of evil, Ephesians 6.16. It is a double-edged sword that cuts asunder and slays the arguments of Satan and his followers, Ephesians 6.17. Whenever I'm out, and I, there's we, me and my wife, we go to the beach twice a year. And um, this one beach we would go to, the Jehovah's Witness would like set up a stand, and they're handing out their things. And I would get up there and I'd debate with script, them with scripture, and I'd quote scripture to them, and I would warn them that they're going straight to hell and all this stuff. They would pack up and leave in ten, five, ten minutes. But if they find a Christian who doesn't know doctrine at all, they love it. It's like morsels to a wolf. When accompanied by the Spirit's power, it causes believers in the church to be spiritually conquerors of planet Earth. Matthew 28, 15, following Revelation 19, 15, and Ephesians 6, 17. The whole history of the church has been one of decay, declension, and apostasy. The churches have had external pressures and attacks, but the internal corruptions of doctrine, worship, and practice have been far more devastating and long-lasting effect on the churches. If you're raised a Roman Catholic, I can guarantee you about 99.99% .99 of the time, you're not going to know what the gospel is. Your version of the gospel is going to be a false, deadly, fake gospel. Modern Christians, generally speaking, have a negative attitude toward theological explication and precision. Even I experienced that even in the RPCNA. Brian cares about doctrine. He doesn't care about people. Brian's too obsessed with doctrine. Well, that, that's a fallacy of black and white. You can care about doctrine and care about people. If you care about people, you better care about doctrine. Because you can care about people all you want and have all the compassion in the world, but if you're teaching them a lie, you're not helping them. They are even a uh, more hostile attitude towards polemical theological preaching and writing. They do not understand the great importance of clinging to the faith. For grasping the faith and never letting it go involves not only theological precision and emphasis, but also defending the faith against all false teachers and heretics. They don't know their history of the Reformation. John Knox, you know how he, he brought the Reformation to Scotland? He'd just go to each town and he would set up a debate with the, the priests and the scholars. And in front of the people, he would completely demolish them. That's the way to have Reformation, truth against error. In the Apostles' generation, there were heresies and ethical problems that arose. There were men who denied the resurrection of the body, justification by faith alone, and the real incarnation of Christ, that Jesus came in the flesh. He had a real flesh and blood body. They were the Neoplatonics and some of the Gnostics. The apostles did not sit around and accept heirs in the name of love and unity. They were obsessed with biblical doctrine. They were obsessed with clinging to and upholding the true faith. Therefore, the epistles contain detailed refutations against such corruptions. And they also commanded their successors to do the same things in order to cling to and defend the faith.
1 Timothy 1.3, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge them that they teach no other doctrine. 1 Timothy 1.20, Having faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected, concerning the faith that suffered shipwreck, of whom Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may not learn to blaspheme. 1 Timothy 6, 3, 4, and 5. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing. Men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, from such withdraw yourself. Separate the people who pervert the doctrine and the worship. They're the ones guilty of schism, not the ones who separate themselves to obey the truth. <clears throat> Second Timothy one thirteen. Oh, here, oh, here's First Timothy six twenty one. Oh, Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust. Avoid the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Second Timothy one thirteen. Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me. First Timothy two uh, one. Or this might be Second Timothy. I'm, I might have wrote this down. The things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. 2 Timothy 2, 24-25 A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. So whose job is it to contradict false doctrines? It's the pastor. It's the teaching elder's job. It's not his job to say, well, we're going to give you an exception to the truth and you can join our church and we'll just accept your error. No, he's to refute it. Titus 1, 9 and 11. Holding fast the faithful word is being taught that he may be able to by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict whose mouths must be stopped. Titus 1.13, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Titus 2.1, speak the things which are sound, proper for sound doctrine. Romans 16.17, now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned. And avoid them. Separate. 1 Timothy Excuse me, 1 Corinthians 1.10. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing. And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind. What does the same mind mean? You believe the same things. You teach the same things. And in the same judgment. So for Paul, schism or schism is based upon a disagreement with biblical doctrine. The only way to avoid or heal schism is for an agreement in the mind, which means an agreement in theology. Unity is not found in one organization or an ecclesiastical uh, or organizational unity. That's not the way or unity is formed in the Bible. Paul insists that doctrine is important and theological uh, divergence is a sin. And, oh, by the way, heresy is listed as one of the sins of the flesh in, in Ephesians no, it's, or Galatians. Organizational union without theological agreement was precisely the trouble at Corinth. The remedy is intellectual unity. Those who depart from Orthodox teaching are, according to Paul, schismatics. 
not people like Luther or Calvin who separated themselves from heresy and apostasy. So I'll just give you an idea what the Bible says. The reason for the apostles' obsession with correct doctrine is obvious when we look at church history. Human traditions and theological errors that are not defeated and thoroughly removed from the church become accepted, defended, and then constitutional errors. They make it into the church standards. Like the Council of Trent, Catholic Catechism, 1994, the Baltimore Catechism, like the Arminian, the Assembly of God, and these other Arminian creeds that are out there. The bad comes in, and if it is not removed, it replaces the good. There is no neutrality. The greatest persecutor of true Christians after the Protestant Reformation was the Roman Catholic Church. Armenian evangelical churches do not allow the true gospel to be, to be preached in their churches. They do not allow Calvinism or Augustinianism, which is a nickname for the true gospel. I know. The moment I became Calvinistic, I was fired when I was a street preacher. Churches that have abandoned biblical worship for humanistic, Arminian, popish, man-centered worship do not allow biblical worship in their congregations. If we do not hold fast to what is good, the bad will eventually replace the good. Because one, that is a tendency of our fallen natures if we do not habitually and consistently fight against the flesh. There's a natural degradation of man. That's why sanctification is easy. You believe you're saved. You're justified. Sanctification is not easy. It's hard work. Two, there is no epistemological, philosophical, theological, or ethical neutrality. If one is not thinking and doing the right thing, then one is certainly holding to and following the wrong thing. Fallible men with sinful natures always bring decay if they do not strictly obey Paul's command, hold fast to that which is good. The Presbyterians of the first, 1556 and following, and the second Reformation, 1638 to 1650, understood this principle of church corporately holding fast that which is good, and that they put the doctrinal and practical attainments, worship, church government, and discipline in writing. And after 30, thorough study and reflection by teachers and elders, so there would be clarity, agreement, and protection from Romanists and Prelatists, that is Episcopalians, who were persecuting Presbyterians in Scotland. They also covenanted together. They swore before God and each other to cling to and obey these achievements. We're going to stick to the Reformation. Us and our children, we're not going to compromise. The catechisms and confession were used to teach and indoctrinate the people with the truth so the people would not return to popery or prelacy. When Christians and churches are challenged or assaulted by theological wolves within and enemies without, they have something good, biblical, and irrefutable to stand upon. If we are hold fast that which is good, then we must keep the biblical testimony and the lawful covenants that support that testimony. And the testimony, of course, is totally in line with Sola Scriptura. The doctrinal achievements of the covenanters were thoroughly proved by Scripture, and our text teaches us that we must be able to prove these things also by the Word of God. The Westminster Standards are found upon the rock of Scripture, 
and expressed the most mature, detailed, and excellent statement of faith of the whole Reformation. The standard's incredible value and relevance lies solely in the fact that they are totally biblical. We touched upon this very carefully last week. Sola Scriptura and the authority of Scripture, it's our sole standard for faith and life, but that doesn't rule out having a solid biblical subordinate standard. While we recognize the supremacy, infallibility, and authority of the Word of God, and therefore study it carefully, we can be helped in our commitment to the Word by recognizing and learning from biblical subordinate standards. And we have seen in our brief consideration of church history that holding fast that which is good is not incompatible with the adoption of biblical creeds and confessions. The one is designed to uphold the other. If we are to speak of church tradition, In a positive, apostolic sense, it would be the accumulated, correct, biblical exegesis of Scripture by the Church throughout its long history. That which is fully biblical is retained and passed on in its organized, clear, confessional or theological form. That which is unbiblical is rejected and discarded as a human tradition or an incorrect exegesis of Scripture. And the ancient church used to have anathemas. If you, hold, if you deny the resurrection, you're anathema. You're under a curse. We proclaim you under a curse. If you deny the biblical doctrine of salvation, you're under a curse, etc., etc. The biblical church adds nothing of its own. The testimony that we are supposed to hold to in the present is identical to the apostolic testimony in the first century. The truths presented are identical, but our advantage lies in the fact that theological statements became, become easier to understand, as well as more systematic and organized as the church carefully studies the scriptures and fights off various heresies and incorrupt interpretations over time. After the Council of Chalcedon, there are no good reasons or excuses for misunderstanding the hypostatic union of the two natures in Christ in one person. They perfected that doctrine. There's no reason to, there's no excuse to not believe that. After the Protestant Reformation, the fully biblical doctrine of justification by faith alone is clearly set forth in a manner that he who runs may read and understand. Now, what the problem with evangelicals today is they don't study that stuff. They don't learn... If you ask the average evangelical, what is justification by faith? They have no idea. They're, they've been taught that getting saved is you accept Jesus into your heart. You open up the ribcage, let him into the heart, and you're saved. We are not saying that Paul or Scripture is unclear on these matters, but that the correct exegesis and theological exposition of these precious doctrines set forth in correct confessional form over time so that church officers and communicant members can be tested and approved is a crucial aspect of the corporate sanctification of Christ's church. It is a crucial way of holding fast to that which is good and rejecting that which is bad. And covenanting is designed to hold fast these biblical attainments because man's sinful tendency is to go backwards. Take the attainments for granted and be more inclusive of incorrect views for the sake of church growth as well as a humanistic concept of unity. If you hold to the truth faithfully, in the OPC, the PCA, and the RPCNA, you will be persecuted. People will not like you if you don't celebrate Christmas. They'll think you're a kook. In the PCA and OPC, if you're an exclusive psalm singer without musical instruments, which is the biblical pattern, people think you're a kook. You will be shunned. 
Now keep in mind, <clears throat> we live in a time where serious errors and heresies abound. Where intellectual elites are blasphemous and, Im and immorality, lawlessness, and sexual perversions have come upon America and the West like a mighty deluge. Paul says, Ephesians 4, 17, 18, that unbelievers walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. Young people don't want to get married today. They just want to go out and have sex like a dog. And be for rabid fornicators. Now keep in mind that the two pillars which Satan uses to destroy Christian civilization and culture are errors, lies about God, salvation, ethics, and reality, and ignorance. A people who do not know the truth and thus blindly follow secular humanists, wicked fools, and philosophical Satanists are doomed. And, you know, the, the, the churches in the ghetto, the black, the African churches in the ghetto that are liberal. These men are just as wicked false prophets as the prophets of Baal. Refusing to preach personal responsibility and condemn sin, theft, getting married, having children out of wedlock, fornicating like a wild beast. They don't condemn those things. I actually saw one on the news. A, a, a drugstore was leaving, I think it was Boston. And he said, here's a minister, he's a preacher. It's because of racism. These people are oppressing us by leaving. No, they're leaving because there's so much theft, they can't make a profit. If you can't make a profit, you cannot stay in business. They are bound with chains of darkness and live out a complete lie, all the while thinking they are wise and enlightened. The professing evangelical churches are generally speaking anti-doctrinal and theologically corrupt. I get these you know, new church plants of evangelical churches all the time. The advertisements are, we have the best children's program and the most fun worship in town. Their worship is worldly, humanistic, man-centered, and entertainment-oriented. Consequently, our only hope as a nation is for churches to return to Scripture and be thoroughly taught the first principles of the oracles of God, see Hebrews 5.12. Instead of human autonomy, where men decide for themselves what is right and wrong, good or evil, men need biblical knowledge and faith, which leads to wisdom and understanding. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom, Proverbs 1.7. Without biblical knowledge, faith, and understanding, the direction of the whole man is darkness, vanity, futility, and evil. Without biblical knowledge, believed and clung to, the mind cannot be good, Proverbs 19.2. And one's worldview will always be wrong. <coughs> if you have a wrong worldview, everything else is going to be poisoned. Without this clinging to Scripture by faith and obedience unto it, one cannot really experience the good life of happiness and peace. Without knowing the truth and clinging firmly to it, one cannot be saved or persevere unto the end. Remember God's warning to Israel. This is a great passage to memorize. Hosea 4.6 My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being priest for me. Because you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. The rejecting of the truth has multi-generational consequences. And the children of those who became rebellious in the 60s 
and turn to mysticism and drugs and all that and sexual immorality. Those children are running our country now, and they're the most evil generation we've had in many generations. They're very evil. If we want personal sanctification and godly dominion, we must be totally committed to holding fast the truths of Scripture. If we do not, our confession will be choked out by the cares of this world and our society will become idolatrous and statist. It is our responsibility as Christians to never tolerate or countenance false doctrines or corrupt worship practices. And I'm going to quote J.C. Ryle because everybody looks at him as being very mild-mannered and careful. Quote, there is a hatred, which is downright charity. That is the hatred of erroneous doctrine. There is an intolerance which is downright praiseworthy. That is the intolerance of false teaching in the pulpit. Who would ever think of tolerating a little poison given to him every day? If men come among you who do not preach all the counsel of God, who do not preach of Christ and sin and holiness of ruin, redemption and regeneration, and who do not preach these things in a scriptural way, you ought to cease to hear them. You know, I'd go, I'd preach in these RPCNA churches out in the country where the kids have all left. And there I'll join the local Baptist Armenian church because they married Susie or something. That's called occasional hearing. It's a sin to listen to heretics. You ought to act upon the injunction given by the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Cease, my son, to hear instruction, which causes to err from the words of knowledge. Proverbs 19.27. You ought to carry out the spirit shown by the Apostle Paul in Galatians 1.8. Though we or an angel from heaven preach any other doctrine unto you than what we have preached, let him be accursed. If we could bear to hear Christ's truth mangled or adulterated and can see no harm in listening to that which is another gospel and can sit at ease while sham Christianity is poured into our ears and can go home comfortably afterwards and not burn with holy indignation. If this be the case, there is little chance of our ever doing much to resist Rome. If we are content to hear Jesus Christ not put in his rightful place, we are not men and women who are likely to do Christ much service or fight a good fight on his side. He that is not zealous against error is not likely to be zealous for the truth. And that is totally antithetical to the way evangelicals, even many, many Reformed churches think today. When I wrote a book against the Federal Vision, condemning it, explicitly showing errors and heresies, and I was selling it at a conference, and these guys are all, you know, this guy came up to me, well, can't you just not say anything negative about them. They're, they're our wonderful brothers in Christ. Just put it in positive forms. I said, no, no, no. They, they've said these things. We need to expose what they've taught. We must exercise our right of private judgment and prove all things. If we do not, we must live by an implicit faith in others, and church history has shown that the others are often corrupt, in error, and even heretical. Then, we must hold fast that which is good, so that we persevere and pass the true, true gospel and counsel of God down to our children. Holding fast the good involves hating and rejecting the bad. Holding on to the true entails fighting against errors, lies, and corruptions. Every duty, however, is dependent on a solid knowledge of Scripture and the biblical truths it presents. Peter says to all Christians, you have to be ready to give an answer for your faith in Christ to anyone who asks you. You need to be able to explain the fall. You need to explain sin. You need to explain God's moral law, that God has ethical absolutes, and that if we break these ethical absolutes, we're under condemnation. And sadly, most professing Christians today are completely ignorant. A superficial Bible, uh, knowledge of the Bible is not enough. 
We must know the Bible thoroughly so that we can defend and uphold its precious truths. The best policy is to read it every day. And it only takes three or four chapters a day to read the whole Bible every year. That doesn't take very long. Read a couple chapters when you get up. Read a couple chapters before you go to bed. If you're married, read them to your wife. Read them back to each other. It's not that hard. I've read the Bible many times, and every time I read it, I go, wow, I didn't notice this. Wow, look at this. Whoa, look at that. It's so rich. It's, it's, there's so much there. You could study it for 100 years, and still it's just full of richness. You will always benefit from reading it. If you neglect your Bible and solid Orthodox Christian theology, you place your soul in great danger. When it comes to the multitude of false teachers in America, can you say to their lies and inventions, your teachings are not true because they contradict Scripture? Your doctrines and requirements are false and humanistic because they cannot be proved by Scripture. Churches can and have fallen into heresy and declined. Many have. Most have. The state has descended to the point of ethical chaos and wicked madness. But if you know and believe Scripture, you have all that you need for life and godliness. You know, most of the, a bunch of the Lutherans supported Adolf Hitler. A bunch of professing Christians voted for Joe Biden. A, a wicked, socialistic thief and tyrant who believes in murdering babies. They voted for that. In addition... In a day when heresies and errors are so prevalent, it is important that you find and join a church that takes biblical worship and orthodox theology seriously. Just quickly, when choosing a church, some questions to keep in mind. First, does the church strictly adhere to the Westminster Standards or the Three Frames of Unity without equivocations, corruptions, and dishonest loop subscriptionism? And of course, if you're subscribing to the Helvetic, you have to take out the part about Holy Days in addition to the Sabbath, which is clearly unscriptural. There is a common attitude among professing Christians that all churches are somewhat corrupt and that we should simply accept it. But this was not the attitude of the Reformers or the Covenanters or the Puritans. The call of the Reformation was always reforming, sefer reformanda, not always declining. If people accept garbage, if they accept crap, they're going to get crap. They're going to get garbage. There is no Reformation among us because the people don't care. They tolerate corruption. If people accept corruption is normal, so one should not rock the boat, they will get corruption. Second, does the church practice biblical worship, exclusive psalmody, a cappella, without extra biblical holy days, such as Christmas? Third, does the church practice biblical discipline? That is, does it strictly follow biblical procedures, Matthew 18, 15, and 4 following, or does it follow a pragmatical pragmatism, which means rule by gossip, rule by back private meetings, without following scripture, without proper witnesses, without following biblical procedures, which is very common, or arbitrary decisions. When I was in the RPCNA, I, I, I had more trust in a pagan court than I did in their courts, at least in the Presbyterian I was in, because they treated people they disagreed with theologically, theologically that held to the Western standards, totally with disrespect and contempt. And people who were denying and contradicting the standards, they sided with them and helped them overcome every charge. Fourth, does the church accept modern humanistic feminism or does it practice covenant headship? Only men are head of household voting. 
And of course, the requirement of a real cloth head covering on women in public worship, which is very clear in 1 Corinthians. It doesn't mean the hair. That's a ridiculous view. Fifth, does the church practice a biblical view of the sacraments? Rejecting baptismal regeneration, Anabaptist theology, and erroneous views of the Lord's Supper. For example, transubstantiation, consubstantiation, paedo-communion, the use of grape juice, open communion, where anybody who just walks in can take communion. Such two churches, sad to say, are few and far between. They need your fellowship and they need your support. Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. And I'll end with this, Psalm 119, 105, 130. The, uh, I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients, that, or literally the aged, because I keep your precepts. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The entrance of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. Hold fast to the truth and judge everything by Scripture. Prove it. Prove it. Life would be much simpler for me if I believed in singing uninspired hymns and I celebrated Christmas. I would be far more popular than I am. But I don't care what people say. Let the whole world be wrong. Let the whole world be proved a liar. God, what God says is truth, and we have to obey it. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you so much. Cause us to study it. Cause us to learn it. Cause us to meditate on it and, and even memorize it and apply it to our lives consistently. Help us, Lord, for we fall short every day because of the wicked flesh. Don't let us self-deceive ourselves and be a fool and be lukewarm. Help us to be fully attentive to your word in every way possible and obey it. In Jesus' name, amen.